There's no other victim that I can think of in our society where we would say, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry that that happened to you, but would you shut up and not say anything about it? Would you not, would you stop trying to do something to prevent it from happening to other people? Welcome to Dear Jane. I'm your host, Scott Baker. You know about the hundreds of thousands of abortions every year, but did you know that not all of them are successful? Thousands of people survive attempted abortions every year. As you might imagine, while failed abortions can result in life, they can also carry a heavy physical and emotional load for the survivor. That's where the Abortion Survivors Network comes in. Melissa Odin is their founder and CEO. Melissa, what is the Abortion Survivors Network all about? When people hear the words abortion survivor, they don't often realize what that even means. People tend to think an abortion survivor is a woman who had an abortion. Sometimes people will say, oh, well, my parents thought about aborting me, and so I'm a survivor of abortion. But for the Abortion Survivors Network, that truly is babies who survived actual attempts to end their lives through some sort of an abortion attempt. So it could be a surgical abortion. It could be a chemical abortion. It might be attempts to abort the child at home. You know, we often say babies survived abortions before Roe versus Wade. Many of us survived during Roe and babies are still surviving abortions today, even after Roe has fallen. How do you um, find out that you were an abortion survivor? I know this opens Pandora's box to a million questions, right? Not only like, wow, this is a thing and how does that happen? But how do you even know? And there's a lot of emotion about whether survivors should even know their story. Parents in particular have a lot of emotions about survivors knowing their stories. And, you know, I guess I can relate to that a little bit through my own story. My adoptive parents knew full well that I had survived a failed abortion, that I had had health issues. And, you know, like many parents, they kept it a secret because they thought that was going to protect me from being hurt by that knowledge. And I absolutely understand it. But I can tell you that survivors have this feeling about them that something is different about them. You're you're set apart. A lot of survivors kind of describe it as you're on the outside of life and circles of people, always sort of looking in. You don't feel like you belong. And for a lot of survivors raised in their biological family, there's a lot of trauma, a lot of neglect and abuse. And so they spend a lot of time thinking, wow, there's something seriously wrong with me uh, that I'm being treated this way. So that's a little bit of the backstory. But all that to say, I would say most abortion survivors do not even know their story. Much to unpack there, as you said. So let's talk about some of the emotional stuff first. Let's just start there. Uh, you said that many abortion survivors often feel like they're on the outside. They don't belong, uh, things like that. Um, I can understand that, certainly, um, but I could almost understand the other side of, wow, I'm I'm here. I survived for a reason. Um, what's, you know, why, why was I spared? Um, walk us through that a little bit. I mean, the, the different emotions and, and how they are navigated and help us understand that a little bit better. Yeah, it's one of those pieces that even in the pro-life movement, you know, for decades, people have talked about abortion survivors, were talked about in the media. You know, there have been Pulitzer Prize 
um, winning articles about abortion survivors, but never, but never did anybody really scratch the surface to say, so what is that like? You experience stress in the womb that your biological mother is going through in her time of crisis. Then you go through the stress of an abortion attempt, whatever that is, and the impact that it has on your developing brain and on your body. And then for many of us, then we go through the stress and trauma of some sort of premature delivery. And sadly, for some of us also being laid aside or not provided medical care, and whether that's for minutes to hours to, yes, some survivors that we re read reports on, they survived for days before, unfortunately, they lost their lives. Uh, and then you go through the stress of being in a NICU and medical care. And then for some survivors, you add in the trauma of being raised in a biological family that had faced a crisis and then faced the crisis of a failed abortion and not expecting a live birth and parenting that child. So there's the trauma and the stress of that, of the unhealed issues. And so we have survivors who have this trauma that is piled upon trauma. And so it's really, really complex to start to pull out. And there's no one size fits all. But what I would say is it is this commingling of understanding your life as a miracle and, you know, taking heart in that. But then at the same time, having it coexist with the one thing that causes you so much deep suffering and, you know, has caused other people in your life suffering and living in a culture that really in many ways rejects us, <clears throat> shows such hatred towards survivors. We're the problem, right? There's no other victim that I can think of in our society where we would say, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry that that happened to you, but would you shut up and not say anything about it? Would you not, would you stop trying to do something to prevent it from happening to other people? Meaning that if someone is strongly pro-choice, they have to look you in the eye and and basically say, I wish you were dead. I believe Absolutely. you should be dead. Absolutely. Or gosh, you know, I'm sorry that that happened to you, but don't you dare speak out against abortion, right? You survivors need to sit down, not be doing anything to protect anyone else from experiencing the same kind of suffering. And who else would we do that to? Yeah. You know, I, I do believe the, the emotional, um, aspect of it would be multi-layered and extremely complex only because just in my experience you know I've have a chance uh just recently to talk to some to a few different folks whose uh mothers went into the abortion clinic um parking lot she chose right both of them both of their uh when they found out about that their mothers were in that position uh both of them, as they got into adulthood, reacted very differently. They both found out uh, around their early 20s, late teens, early 20s, they found out this story that their mothers had considered aborting them. And they both reacted very, very differently. One took it as, wow, I wasn't wanted. Mm -hmm. uh, the other was, wow, I was saved. I was spared. So even that was uh very very different not so then now to get into the position where you were actually you know aborted it was tempted to be aborted uh and yet you were survival i believe it i believe so tell us about your experience when did you find out 
uh, your story and, and what were some of the emotions sort of walk us through your experience? Yeah, I am what many people think is kind of the poster child of a born alive infant, AKA an abortion survivor. I survived during Roe. I now know my birth mother was a 19 year old college student forced to have a saline infusion abortion. Uh, people often think my story is wildly dramatic. And yes, I agree. But trust me, every abortion survivor's story, and even those targeted for abortion, we have pretty wild stories. Um, my birth mother was estimated to be about 18 to 20 weeks. That's what my medical records indicate. Uh, but the fact that I weighed almost three pounds when I was accidentally born alive indicated she was probably more like 31 weeks pregnant with me. And I can tell you that I hear about this so frequently in our population of survivors. We know abortionists aren't performing adequate exams. You know, we know in this post-row world where they are cramming chemical abortions down people's throats in vending machines, uh, pushing for telemed with no doctor visits, women don't know how far along they are in their pregnancies. And so think about how many women are having abortions not knowing how far along they are. So that's probably one of the reasons why I'm alive, because even though I soaked in a toxic salt solution poisoning me for five days, that poison, of course, changed my life forever. I have some health issues that I don't, you know, I haven't always talked a lot about, um, but I do have some issues lingering um, because of that and the trauma that I faced. Um, but you know, I soaked in this solution for five days and I was accidentally born alive. I was laid aside and not immediately provided medical care. I know these things because God has been so good to me. I'm connected with many of the medical professionals who cared for me as well as my biological family. Help me understand accidentally born alive. Yeah. It might be obvious to some people, but I'm a little slow on the uptake. So yeah, help me understand that. I say accidentally on purpose. Uh, the type of procedure I survived, it should have lasted about three days. They would inject this toxic salt solution into amniotic fluid. The intent, of course, was this for the toxic salt solution to end the child's life, mine. And then they would induce labor. And the intent, of course, was for that deceased child to then be expelled from the womb. So this is what most people think of when we engage in some of these conversations in the world. They'll say, oh, well, late-term abortions don't happen. Well, okay, let's go ahead and look through Guttmacher statistics and let's talk about this, how it does happen. But then they'll say, oh, you know, well, in states where let's say there's a 15-week uh, law on the books, well, then we don't have born alive infants because we're we're not aborting children after 15 weeks. Well, let's talk about the loopholes that exist. Let's talk about induction of labor, which is just a fancy way of saying, yes, sometimes we're going to call it another thing, but we're inducing labor with the intent of this child not surviving this delivery, right? It's about the intent. The intent was for me to be delivered dead and God had other plans for me. In medical terms, I was accidentally born alive. So when did you find out your story. What age were you? I was 14 when I found out. So grow up, grew up knowing I was adopted, that I had had health issues, that I was premature. You know, I was, as we talk about kind of how people perceive it, I grew up thinking, man, I'm so blessed, right? I'm blessed to be alive. I have this cool family. My mom and dad love me. Life is good. And then when I was 14, 
my older sister faced an unplanned pregnancy and was considering every option. And so when our parents knew that she was facing that decision, they finally broke their silence and they told her my story. And that ultimately saved the life of her son and ultimately her life because she chose life for him. Um, and that's how I found out my story because it came out in an argument one night. She didn't tell me everything, but it set the stage for me to ask my mom for more to the story of my life. And so I know it's hard for people to imagine what it's like to be in a survivor's shoes, but I can tell you what it's like to be 14 and hear the words, you know, miss your biological mother had an abortion during her pregnancy with you and you survived it. And your reaction? Um, like a bomb had been detonated. I didn't know back then this was a thing, right? I had no idea that babies could survive abortions. And to go from believing that my birth parents loved me so much that they gave me life and the gift of my family, you know, suddenly it felt like that couldn't ever be true. And of course, there's always more of the story. And God put me on that path to find out more of the story and have this great heart and compassion for my biological parents. But it doesn't negate the fact that it is a very traumatic thing to find out your story. One of the first things I think of when I when I hear about that is if I'm an adult in that scenario, whether I'm the adoptive parents, the biological parents, or whatever, the responsible adult in that scenario, how would I even broach the topic with a child to tell them? I don't even know how I would do that. Right. What's and I can say that that was my parents' experience as well. My mom <laughs> literally for hours was tap dancing around the subject, right? Trying to like build me up and speak such great love. And there is just, you can't build up enough in that moment of time to drop that bomb. And, you know, it's so interesting to me because after that, I put on my game face, which was, I'm fine, right? I am fine. I'm not going to let my parents know how much I'm hurting. I'm the good kid. I've caused them enough suffering, right? When I now know my story, goodness, I have caused them enough suffering. So I need to keep this to myself. And so I turned my pain inward, like so many people, so many survivors do and developed an eating disorder and alcohol abuse and you name a poor choice. And boy, did I walk that out in an attempt to run away from the truth about my survival and the pain that I was experiencing. And at the same time, right, my mom is on her end thinking, oh my gosh, is she okay? I mean, I don't really want to ask her because if she's not talking about it, I don't want to upset her. So we're doing this like dysfunctional dance, not knowing the steps that the other one is taking. And I can tell you that I see this played out in families of survivors in such a huge way. And for us, that's part of our work at the Survivors Network is to say, no, 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 we're not going to do the dysfunctional dance, right? We get it. We know how hard it is for parents to talk about this, but parents deserve better and survivors deserve better. And so we set the stage with families who approach us to say, let's come alongside you with our clinical social worker. So you can just start even talking about what abortion is in your family. Maybe you guys have never talked about it. And what, what do you do when your survivor is 10 years old, right? You have to start talking about this in an age-appropriate way. And then you have to start talking about failed abortions and abortion survivors before you could even say, oh, hey, by the way, you are one of them. And so we are so honored to come alongside families and walk that out. So I've been blessed to get to meet some of our youngest survivors 
And, you know, one of them who is now she's now 11, when we set the stage and she, her family prepared her and then they told her her story, she had a response like I did when I was 14. But what was different is that the parents were able to say, you are not alone. And she went, what? What? Like there, for real, there are other people like me and can I meet them? And the mom went, sure. So I got to meet this young lady over Zoom and it just gives me chills because this is what I am called to do with my life. And when we were talking that day, she had so many questions, but she said, you know, I want to be a mommy someday. And I said, that's great. And she said, but who would ever want to marry me if they find out what my mom did to me? That is the heart of an abortion survivor. The I am so rejected. There is something so wrong with me, right? That if anybody finds out that somebody tried to take my life, I am going to be unlovable. I'm going to be unwanted. And I got to tell her that day, right, babe, this is my job is to change the world so that if someday you choose to tell anybody your story, they're not going to be scared of this anymore. Sitting with Melissa Odin from the Abortion Survivors Network. We're going to take a break here on Dear Jane. When we come back, we're going to talk about some of the resources that are available to abortion survivors. And we're going to talk about some of the issues that they face. We'll do that when we come back here on Dear Jane. Are you a pregnancy center or pro-life organization that wants to grow your life-saving mission in a way that effectively reaches women who need help? At Choose Life Promo, our ultimate goal is to help organizations empower women to choose life. We take our design and marketing expertise to the next level, creating apparel, videos, and other items that are eye-catching and attractive, ripe with accurate information specifically for women that need support, and spread awareness about your pregnancy center to donors and potential supporters. At Choose Life Promo, our mission is to impact our culture, to choose life through communication strategies grounded in both research and biblical values. We want to give you promotional items that inspire donations and also educate the abortion-minded woman about your pregnancy center so she can receive the care and support she needs. Saving lives is always in style. Learn more at ChooseLifePromo.com. And we're back here on Dear Jane. Melissa Odin from the Abortion Survivors Network joins us, and we're talking about, um, you know what I almost said, Melissa, is the existence of abortion survivors. That sounds kind of crude, but really that is what we're talking about in a way. You know, I mean bringing awareness. That's part of what you do, right? I mean, really is helping people understand that there are abortion survivors um, and that it's important we bring awareness to that and 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 to their to, to, to their existence. We talk about it. I mean, that's one of the things you said that really is your goal is is to talk about it and help people understand that that this these folks exist. Is that I mean, is that right? It is. You know, my team and I are drilling down what the pillars of our programs are, and we do a lot. You know, there's nobody in the pro-life movement who does what we do, and we are the only organization worldwide who serves survivors and families. But as we engage in this process of 
healing survivors and empowering them with relationships that fill that void of rejection that so many survivors have faced. And then we equip them with skills on how to share their story, how to be advocates, how to be, you know, co-leaders in a pro-life movement. You know, the movement has never seen a community of survivors before. And, and survivors have this deep yearning to serve and make a difference. But as we engage in that, what I've had to do as the CEO is take a, a step back and say, you know what, our number one pillar is education. Because without that, survivors won't know they're not alone. Families won't know there are other families like them. Policymakers won't know it. So folks are going to see more of our research coming out in upcoming months. You're going to see more videos, more survivor stories, um, and really just setting that stage to educate people about the fact that, yeah, this is a thing, a big thing. As we talk about um, helping survivors and the resources that and we'll talk more in detail about that here in a second. Do you ever um, run across or do you deal with the biological mothers often, much at all? We do. Biological mothers are often underserved as well when it comes to failed abortions. You know, it's, again, one of those circumstances where we celebrate when a life is spared from abortion, right? That is that is a miracle. Every abortion survivor's life is a miracle. But yet we don't often talk about what it's like for a woman who has had a failed abortion. You know, for my birth mother, she is so grateful now to know that I'm alive and that her abortion failed. But as you can imagine, there's a lot of trauma. You don't undo the memory of that abortion. You don't undo the circumstances that led up to it. And so many of those biological moms live with shame and guilt. They're fearful of their child ever finding out. Um, we have survivors who are raised in their biological family. We're pushing in upwards of 70% that are raised in their biological family. So not as many are, are adopted. Now, internationally, we find a high number of abortion survivors as adoptees. And certainly when you look at, at countries like Russia with nine abortions for, for women, right back in that time period, it makes a lot of sense why we have international adoptees um, who are survivors at a high level. But, you know, here in the U.S., for those survivors who are raised in their biological family, I wish I could tell you that that is always a positive story for survivors. But again, there's shame and guilt and fear and sometimes anger um, there's a lot of unhealed trauma. And so what I have found is that we have poor outcomes for those survivors raised in biological family if those families have not been supported. Um, we see survivors at a, a higher level going on to have abortions themselves in those instances, even though they survived an attempt. You know, part of it is obviously unhealed trauma and how trauma compounds on itself. And some of it is that a family continues on the path of what they know, even if it is something that was painful, right? You default to what you know. And, you know, sadly, what I found in some of those families is parents have made it clear, we're going to finish the cycle that we started. And the cycle started when I attempted to abort you. And one way or the other, this cycle is going to end. 
How's How that play out? What, what do you mean by that? Well, a couple of ways. I mean, this is shocking to people. And again, it is not pleasant for survivors to live with and it's not pleasant to talk about, but we have to have an honest conversation about what happens in survivors' lives. So there's two distinct things we see happen in that cycle playing out. One of them is we have survivors raised in their biological family where family members have attempted to kill them even after they are surviving an abortion. So think about being seven years old and having a gun pointed down your mouth and being told, you know what, we're finishing this, right? It We started it years ago and it didn't work in one way or the other. And it gives me chills still to this day to talk about it because I have heard that story more times than I can count, veiled in different experiences. Really? And the other way it plays itself out, this cycle of, you know, an attempt to end a life started and wasn't completed, is that we see biological families coercing and forcing an abortion survivor to have an abortion themselves when they become pregnant. I can give one good example of that. One of our team members at the Abortion Survivors Network is in her early 70s. Her name is Priscilla. She was raised in biological family, did not know that her mom had attempted to abort her in an illegal abortion after her, her dad died unexpectedly. So think about this. She's in her 70s. This was pre-Roe. Um, you know, father passes away. Mom goes and has an illegal abortion. But she grows up thinking there's something between mom and I that's different, right? It's not exactly warm and fuzzy. And there's just circumstances that she doesn't understand. Then at the age of 19, she has an abortion. Priscilla does herself. And afterwards, as she's kind of starting to face that pain, mom makes a remark of, well, you know, I did the same thing with you, except you survived. And that's how Priscilla found out her story. And then it, lead, it led her to another abortion in her 20s and then led her to the door of working in an abortion clinic wanting in her mind to give women something she had never found there. These stories exist in the shadows. And how many stories exist in the shadows? As we talked at the very beginning, how many people don't even know their story? How many survivors don't know their story and go on to have abortions themselves? Or as a man, as a male survivor, influence or lack of influence lead their partner to have an abortion? Wow. So. This next question, I'm not sure if I should ask or not. And my mom would have told me, if you're not sure, don't ask. But she would also say I'm a s slow learner. <laughs> um, what are what are some of the um, health consequences of of that you've seen of abortion survivors? I mean, just I'm, I, I want to make this. And the reason I ask is I don't want to get gruesome or, but i mean i i, I want to just make this as real as possible and to help mm -hmm. people under understand the reality of this um yeah, so it, so what are what are some of the health consequences you've seen of abortion survivors yeah this is our education right survivors need to know and the general public need to know and medical providers and families uh because the more we talk about it the more i don't want to say normal it is but the more understood it is so Every survivor's experience is different. And, you know, for survivors, we can survive the same type of procedure at about the same gestation and still have different experiences. But I'll give you just kind of a general rundown of what we see. Most people expect abortion survivors to be missing a limb 
or to be severely disfigured. For me, they expect my skin to be bright red and scalded. That was the intent. Um, but for most survivors, if you passed us on the street, we do not look the way that you that people expect us to. So yes, some are missing limbs, some have disfigured hands or faces from instruments or the impact of um, abortion pills. But most of us carry very invisible scars. So a lot of it is immune system related. So we have very funky immune systems. I've had shingles like 12 or 13 times. I don't even count anymore. Um, but think about that, the stress that we experienced in utero, and then we continue to experience throughout our lives, our trauma switch gets turned on in our body, and we never can quite get that switch turned back off. So you see a lot of immune system issues. Uh, we see high levels of depression and anxiety, like to the point that meds don't touch it. Um, therapy doesn't touch it. Because until we are starting to wrap our brain around the root source of what caused it, um, which is that survivor experience, that's when we start to see movement um, in terms of that getting better. We do see some survivors with pretty significant um, like multi-organ systems being affected. So some survivors who, you know, lose a lot of their hair or they have these unexplainable, you know, GI system issues. Um we see survivors with lots of um, insomnia, uh, a lot of relationship issues. So, and again, I know people can hear it and go, well, yeah, doesn't that sound like anybody? Well, it, it makes sense how it all threads together. Survivors who have very poor boundaries and survivors who have such high walls that they will never let anybody in. Um, there are some really interesting emotional dynamics that happen with survivors. Survivors tend to experience a lot of issues with feeling insecure, um, because how could you not? Right. So survivors, I mean, it really does run the gamut. We are starting to see some survivors of chemical abortions who have little things like teeth enamel issues, um, chronic headaches, things like that. So we are starting to really collect qualitative information that nobody has collected before. So we can start putting out some research on that to really start educating even medical professionals about what the long-term outcomes for survivors look like. People need to have hope, but they also need truth. Yeah. So what are some of the uh, the services I, that you offer? I know, I, like, for example, I, I see one of the things is a healing retreat. What goes on there? Yeah. So survivors, yeah, you know, survivors, again, are so unique in the respect that when a survivor reaches out to us, some survivors connect and bond almost immediately. And some survivors kind of just drop in and say, I'm a survivor. And they might not even tell you all their story, right? Well, we try to, to gather the story, but a lot of survivors will drop the story and then they'll run away. Um, because even connecting with those of us who know the story, right, there's that insecurity. It's the, the struggle to trust anybody with your story. And are they going to, are they going to care about me? Are they going to believe me? And so we found sometimes it can take a survivor of like seven years to fully connect. I mean, and we've seen that number. So it's fascinating, but we also know we have to do everything we can to build those walls of trust so they want to engage and they can see you can trust us no matter what and we aren't going to share your story it's confidential we're going to protect you um, all of those things but we offer retreats uh, we've had nearly 30 survivors a couple years in a row some who came in internationally 
Um, we have a specialized healing curriculum that I wrote. Uh, I had spent years looking around the pro-life movement going, man, somebody should really do something to help people like me. And suddenly in 2019, after praying that prayer for seven years, I woke up and went, oh my gosh, it's me. So um, I, I am grateful. You know, sometimes survivors will say, I have a love-hate relationship with that curriculum. I love how it's changed my life, but oh man, have I hated having to take a look at some of it. I'm like, understood, got that. Um, so we run healing groups. Uh, we do community meetups. So we're starting to do more in-person events starting in 2023 that I'm excited about. So in-person events for survivors to come together at the March for Life um, or other events that we're going to be announcing soon. We do community Zooms, even with abortion survivors around the world. I can tell you there is something so powerful about a survivor even laying eyes on someone else who is so much like them when they believe that they are the only one. I mean, shoot, I can't tell you how many times survivors 60 and 70 years old approach us and say, whoa, I thought I was the only one all these years. So community Zooms, and then we equip them with um, public speaking skills and a speaking coach, and we train them on advocacy and leadership, and then we give them opportunities to share their story and even testify at the state or federal level if that's what they f feel called to do, and that's empowering. Kind of, you mentioned that a couple times now. Um, what kind of legislation do you push for? <laughs> uh, well, first of all, legislation that protects and defends life. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I always love when people will say, well, you know, you survivors, you're the problem. You need to stop testifying on legislation that, that you know, restricts abortion. Well, okay. Um, what else should I do? Um, you know, like, should I, should I run an organization that is based on healing people hurt by surviving abortions, but yet do nothing to end the suffering? I mean, that makes zero sense. But we, of course, are known for testifying for legislation that protects and defends the lives of the preborn. And we will always engage in that work. Uh, but we also are very much involved in born alive legislation. And for me, that is very educational in nature. Most people still kind of have this guttural response to born alive legislation saying, oh, well, that's not needed. That's just stupid. We have laws against infanticide. Well, okay, well, let's realize there are no federal reporting requirements on abortion in general and nothing on born alive infants. And we have 10 states that report out born alive survivors. But when you look at those reports, you find that those survivors still aren't being provided medical care. Look at reports like Texas and Minnesota then tell me that that we don't need any sort of legislation because that was that was someone's child their grandchild their friend their neighbor their sister their brother would we want that for any other child no we understand the truth now but regarding the, the born alive's legis the, the 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 status of that because I've, I've done some research and you hear mixed stuff and you know how it is. You go online and you get all kinds of stuff. What is the truth regarding, you know, law, there's laws in California and some of these other ones. What is the status of that? And what is the truth of the law? What is allowed to happen right now? Right. So when people want to quote this, they'll say, well, you know, President Bush signed something into law in 2002. What that was, was simply a definitions bill. That was a statement saying 
Infants who survive failed abortions are human beings like everybody else and should be provided medical care. There was no teeth to that, no consequence if you failed to do so. So then you start to see that since that time, then we were trying to introduce legislation in the House for a vote that would then, of course, have the teeth that would say there's going to be a penalty if you fail to provide a born alive infant medical care. Well, then you see where the control of the House has been for a long time and why elections matter. So up until this point, it has never had enough signatures to force a House vote. Now, I believe we're going to see something happen in January of 2023. You will see survivors very much be a part of that in terms of educating and setting the stage on why we need to have this go for a vote. But there is nothing federally in terms of reporting board alive events, there is no thing, there's nothing federally that would say it, you know, you're going to face a penalty. People don't want to talk about the fact that, say, in 2008, in the case of Secloria Williams, this was an abortion in Florida. When that baby, her baby, survived that abortion, the baby was born alive and they panicked there at the clinic, put the baby in a biohazard bag and threw the baby on top of the roof of the abortion clinic so they wouldn't be found. Tell me. Tell me that that isn't a problem. So if the what's your answer when why is this federal legislation needed? First of all, because we need to have basic reporting on born alive infants. It starts there. Right. They will say, well, there are no born alive infants or the number is so small. You guys are making a problem. No. Start tracking the data and tell me I'm wrong. That's where I want you to start track the data, and we go from there. And I know what the data looks like, and you guys are going to see us put out a model of data based on a Canadian data model that is really the closest thing we can get to what the incidence of failed abortions look like in just one country. Our research analyst is running data from other countries who collect that as well, such as Australia, so we can start getting a better picture. And we're going to lead with that in our education to to really start to craft um, the conversation around born alive infants to talk about the existence of survivors, the incidence of failed abortions. Why would she be passionate about it? Maybe because she survived it herself. Melissa Odin, the Abortion Survivors Network. The website is abortionsurvivors.org. Really appreciate the time today. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much. The emotions and fears women face with unexpected pregnancies are very real and can feel overwhelming. They're not looking for another person to impress their view upon them or tell them the choice is simple. They're looking for hope in a world of despair, confusion, and doubt. For the pro-life movement to truly achieve its goal of a culture of life, we must be able to reach the abortion-minded woman effectively. We have to be that beacon of light that understands her fear and confusion and empowers her with the confidence necessary to choose life. But how do we really reach her? Enter the Choose Life Coalition. We exist to help provide organizations and legislators with the tools to effectively reach and equip the abortion-minded woman, empowering her with the hope and confidence to choose life in post-Roe America. Learn more at ChooseLifeCoalition.org and receive the training, support, marketing, and other resources you need to successfully understand, reach, and serve her.
Today on People You Should Know, we introduce you to Reverend Arnold Culbreth, the Director of Ministry Engagement with the Douglas Leadership Institute. The Jeremiah 1 in 5 Project is an initiative started by the Institute that was initially designed to engage pastors across America to promote a pro-life message in their communities. Because we want to get to those key influencers in the churches of, 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 the, of the nation uh, to present life and protect life uh, within the lives of their congregants. Reverend Culver says the ask of participants is clear and not just limited to pastors. The three things we ask people to do with the Jeremiah 1-5 project is, first of all, to pray for an end to abortion. The second thing is to preach uh, that life uh, is sacred, that it should be protected. And third and lastly, to promote the project by introducing it to others. Now, when I say preach, I don't want Pete, the listeners to get you know freaked out or anything because you might say, well, I'm not a pulpit preacher. I'm not called to that. Well, preach just simply means proclaim or means to herald or means to trumpet truth on any particular topic. So all of us have spheres of influence. When we tweet, in many instances, we're preaching. When we post on Facebook, when we post on Instagram. Upon its inception, the Jeremiah 1-5 project was aimed toward black ministers. That was by design. Because Margaret Sanger, the founder of Planned Parenthood, had a strategy to infiltrate the black community using the black preachers. We call her project the Negro Project. And she wrote this uh, infamous letter in 1939 to Dr. Clarence J. Gamble of the Procter & Gamble Enterprise, who uh, Dr. Gamble was the president of the American Eugenics Society at the time. And uh, that that letter basically said we should hire uh, two to three um, black preachers that are eloquent speakers that have so preferably social service backgrounds and they can help us get our message out and they can uh, quell any kind of uprising with their more rebellious members, you know, uh, kind of a thing. So Planned Parenthood strategy even today is still in many instances uh, a, a religious appeal to the black community through pastors and preachers. So we we went after black pastors to, as we like to say, reverse the curse of Margaret Sanger and the Negro Project. And our original goal was 250 black pastors. Um, while black pastors aren't the only ones we go after, but for the reasons I just said, that's our primary target audience. Uh, now we have over a thousand black pastors educated and standing up and speaking out for life, uh, both male and female pastors. Reverend Culberth believes that the black community could be the source of many answers when it comes to spreading the pro-life message across America. Because I dare to believe that since the black community is the most significantly impacted by abortion, there will be strategies and solutions that are birthed out of the black community that the pro-life movement has maybe never thought of. When it comes to encouraging pastors to speak out on behalf of life, Reverend Colbert says there's something effective about peer-to-peer -peer encouragement. When a pastor talks to a pastor about life and about abortion and about getting involved, it rings very different in his ears than, and I'm not minimizing 
the appeal and messaging of a pregnancy center director or a right to life uh, leader because they're working to get to the pastors as well. But when a pastor's sitting across the table from another pastor and they golf together, they fish together, their families have gone on vacation together, they know that they have no ax to grind, if you will, no cameras around, no congregants, and they're just talking uh, it, it it's powerful and it's changing the game. So what we're endeavoring to do is to equip and empower pastors to do that. And it's having it's having an incredible, uh, an incredible impact. To learn more about the Jeremiah 1-5 project, visit dlinstitute.org slash Jeremiah. My thanks to Melissa Oden with the Abortion Survivors Network. One point she made that really sticks with me, here's a group of victims, and there really is no other word to describe these individuals. They are victims. Here's a group of victims that are told by a large group of people in our nation to sit down and be quiet. Don't advocate. Don't use your voice. Don't make sure anyone else goes through what you've gone through. Well, these victims won't be silenced by the pro-abortion antagonizers and bullies, and we say good for them. Thank you for listening to Dear Jane. Don't forget to click on the like or follow button and visit our website, dearjane.org. Dear Jane is a production of the Choose Life Coalition. You can learn more at chooselifecoalition.org.